Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Christotes. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. We're in week three of 10 weeks, looking at the nine fruit of the Spirit. Uh, We're not going to go in order, because uh, although I'll preach the first four or five of these messages, then a few of us are going to rotate between the four campuses, and in order to rotate, obviously we're not going to be preaching them in order. So today I'm actually on the fifth fruit, kindness. And just a word... It's very possible for us to look at the nine fruit of the Spirit. It's very possible for us to listen to 10 messages on the fruit of the Spirit and have absolutely no change in our lives. James said, do not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And so I would like to encourage all of us to ask God's Spirit to show us one or two of the fruit that we can work on in our life in this 10-week period. And so I have uh, several accountability friends, uh, four of which I have shared, and I'm going to share like with everyone. I'm working on self-control because in the winter, I don't want to exercise. I like to be indoors, not outdoors. And so I have four friends that are annoying me every day as to whether I've gone to the Y. Just for the record, I've gone three out of the last four days. Two of my former friends walked in this morning and checked to see if the bicep is bigger or smaller. I won't tell you the results of that. Former friends. But we could go through all of the fruit and not change. So what fruit or several fruits would God want in your life, in my life, to develop? They're the fruit of the Spirit. God works in and through us, alongside of us. Salvation is an act only of God. Sanctification is an act of God working in and through us. And so what fruit does God want to develop in your life and in mine? Let's pray. Father God... uh, I thank you for the fruit of the Spirit. We candidly admit that very few of us in this room could work on nine fruits simultaneously. We ask that your Spirit might reveal a fruit or two or three, an area where we need to really work on, invest in, that we might even be able to share that with somebody who cares for our souls that will ask us, hold us accountable. Father, you tell us, do not be a hearer of the word only, but a doer as well. In Luke 12, you tell us, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so the more we learn about your word, the more we are required by you to live it out. And so take a fruit or two and develop in each of us. And then when that is more developed, add another fruit and another 
that we might incrementally become more and more like your son. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Nicholas Winston was born as a German Jew. He was actually born in London. His initial name was Vafam, but when his parents left Berlin and moved to London two years before his birth, they changed their name to Winston, and his name is Nicholas Winston. He had a knack for business. He had a knack for numbers. He grew up and became very powerful, influential in the business world of London. He became an investment banker, a stockbroker. He knew many members of the House of Commons. But he never forgot his roots. He actually was a Christ follower. He knew Jesus as his personal savior. But he knew of his Jewish birth and with alarm, as was true of many Jews all across the world, he saw the rise of Adolf Hitler in 1933. And although Hitler did not do anything overt for a few years, if you read Mein Kampf or you listened to some of his raving speeches, you knew that he was an anti-Semite and he had nothing but evil intended for the Jews. And so after the Kristallnacht, the Kristallnacht is the night of the broken glass, November 1938. That was a wake-up call for Jews around the world. If you know about the Kristallnacht, it's the first night in which the Nazis overtly began to live out their anti-Semitism. They burned a number of Jewish synagogues. They raided a number of Jewish homes. They broke the panes of the glasses of the businesses that were owned by Jews, which is why it's called the Broken Glass Night. They went in and robbed and they murdered 100 Jewish men. Within a few short weeks, they gathered up another 30,000 Jewish men and put them in a concentration camp. And here was Nicholas Winston, not forgetting his heritage, knowing full well that German Jewry was out of his reach. But there would be other Jews in Europe who would soon be in occupied countries and he could do something prior to the occupation. And so he learned about these Czech Jewish children, knew that what was Czechoslovakia, it's no longer called that, but what was Czechoslovakia would soon be invaded. In fact, it would be four months later in March of 1939. He learned of these Jewish children, had connections, went to the House of Commons and said, if I can find homes, will you allow these Czech children, Jewish children, to come into our nation? And he got permission to bring 669 Czech Jewish children to London who eventually would go out into the countryside. And he found them permanent homes. I say permanent because they were foster children that became adoptive children because almost every one of those kids had parents who were taken by cattle car 
to Auschwitz in Poland to be gassed and to be incinerated. 669 children. And history forgot it. History didn't know anything about it. It wasn't until 1988 when a reporter in London discovered something about this man named Nicholas Winston that the story reemerged and his kindness was known to the world and it began to be published and he was called the London Schindler. And then in 2003, Queen Elizabeth II knighted him for his acts of kindness for humanity. And he lived until 2015, dying at 106 years of age. He's a man who lived out the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Christotetes, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, no, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So what does this word kindness, Christotetes, mean? Well, it means benevolence in action. We use the word kindness often to refer to a sweet disposition, a kind disposition. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not how it's used predominantly in Scripture. It's not about our sweet disposition. And some of you have that sweet disposition. Thank you. But it's about benevolence in action. How is this fruit different than some of the others? Think about patience, for instance. Patience is not saying to somebody what you want to say. It's not doing to somebody what you want to do. This is almost the opposite. Kindness is saying to somebody what's hard to say. Kindness is doing for somebody what's costly to do. Kindness, Christotes, is benevolence in action. Now, admittedly, the word sounds a lot like Christ, Christos. In fact, I'm told, this is beyond my education level, but I'm told that etymologically, the development of the words of Christ and Christotes started in a very similar spot and then divided. But they don't mean at all the same thing. Christos, Christ, means anointed one. Christotes means benevolent action. But this is what's very interesting to me. In the first century... Historians tell us that those who are unenlightened about Christianity often thought that Christians were in a club that practiced kindness. Because of the similarities of the two words, they viewed Christians as people who were in a club who practiced kindness towards others. And I've got to step back and ask, does anyone think that that's Christianity today? That we're in a club that practices kindness towards others. I bet that's true for some of you, praise the Lord. But it might be true for some that we look at Christianity and rather than view it as kind, we view it as angry or bitter or hateful 
or spiteful or a lack of charity or forgiveness. A trust that isn't true for many. But I'm moved by the fact that some thought, many in fact thought, that Christianity was a club of kindness. Now we know it's much more than that. In fact, that's a fruit that develops out of us because Christianity is really the embracing of Christ. Christianity is knowing that you and I are sinners. Sin is any attitude, action, thought, motive, inactivity. Anything outside the will of God is sin. And because of an act of incredible kindness, God became man, the second person of the Trinity. God, the Son, took on human flesh, fully God, fully man, and he went to the cross. He lived a perfect life and willingly laid down his life. He paid the penalty of sin, which is death. What an act of kindness. He died on behalf of sinners and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. That if by faith we would believe in Christ and say, yes, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I accept what you did on the cross as the payment of my sin. Your death, your burial, your resurrection. Come into my heart. Forgive me, cleanse me. Be my Savior, be my Lord. Then we are given eternal life. Now I'm sure the early church would have wanted people to understand what Christianity is. It's not a cult of kindness. It's a faith in a redeemer because we need redemption. But as we are filled with God's spirit, then we live it out. And the fruit of God's spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Part of it is kindness. And I've got to step back and ask, am I kind? Would anyone accuse me of being kind. What about my wife? Would she say I'm kind? Oh, I had to preach this when she was here at another service. We'll see how that goes this afternoon, won't we? <laughs> Would my kids say that I'm kind? Several of my kids were in an earlier service. We'll see how that goes. Would my grandkids say that I'm kind? At least one of them is old enough to understand what I'm saying, and she probably heard the sermon too. My mom, oh yeah, she's in Florida, she heard it too. Are people who I'm close to, are they going to say I'm kind? People I supervise, will they say I'm kind? People you work for, or you work with, or you recreate next to, are they going to say that you have a kindness that is not just a sweet disposition, but benevolent action as an act of worship for God expressed to man? That's kindness. Is that true in your life and in mine? We are to be imitators of the Lord. We don't often think of the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone, as an act of kindness. But do you know Scripture does? Let me just read a couple passages that talk about the gospel being kind. Ephesians 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. That's our word, Christotes, towards us. How? In Christ Jesus. 
very overt in Titus 3, 4, 5, and 6. It says this. But when the goodness and loving kindness, Christotes, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness. None of us can do enough good works to come into the presence of a holy God. We needed rescue. But he saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. He gives us a new heart and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He begins to call us to holy lives whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. When you and I are kind, we are like Jesus and we imitate the gospel. Likewise, when we tell others about salvation by faith in Christ alone, we are living out Christotes, kindness. When we invite someone to church who may not regularly come, that's an act of divine kindness in us working out towards others. The fruit of kindness. In 2 Corinthians 6, 3 to 10, Paul gives us 30 things that we ought to work on. The fourth thing is actually kindness. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, Christotes. That's the word given. We ought to be known as individuals of incredible kindness. God's spirit working in and through us. In this regard, I think of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. Now, I'm going to initially talk about the objection somebody might have. You might say, well, we don't know for sure that Abraham Lincoln knows Christ as Savior. I'm going to argue he does, and I'm going to try and make the point. As a young boy, he grew up in a Baptist gospel-preaching church. We know that. We know that he heard the gospel many times. We know that for fact. We also know that he walked away from church and wanted nothing to do with God. All of that is true. But this is the backside of the story. When his wife, Mary Todd, and him lost their second child, Edward, they began to go back to church every week. They actually went to First Presbyterian Church in Springfield, Illinois, where they heard the gospel on a regular basis. So again, he was exposed. Then from that point on, we have records of his writings, many of which have scriptures, his speeches, almost all of which have scriptures, and we know that he read the Bible just about every day. Then he was assassinated. And what we have is Mary Todd, his wife, and we have the head of the Senate, the chaplain, again named Phineas Gurley, both of whom testify that Abraham Lincoln had a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then we have a bishop, John Barrows, who's a pastor who tells us that he prayed with Abraham Lincoln to receive Christ a few years earlier. I would submit to you that we have more evidence that he is a believer than we do of many of us. And so this historical debate is probably not a very wise one to have. I'm gonna take history at face value he demonstrated Christ-likeness. He has somebody saying they prayed with him. He has his wife and the Senate chaplain saying he's a born-again believer. He regularly reads the Bible, and he quotes Scripture in almost all of his messages and writings. Sounds kind of like a believer. Well, he lived out 
many of the fruit. And I want to share one event in his life. It was during the Civil War. Uh, he was at a outdoor hospital in Ohio. He was walking between a number of men who had been wounded and came across one. The writing isn't specific, but you get the feeling that this is a teenage boy, maybe 17, maybe 18. He has suffered a mortal wound. He will die sometime in the next 24 hours. And the president kneels by him and says, is there anything I can do for you, son? And the young man said, will you write a letter to my mother? And so the president takes out a piece of paper and a pen, and the young boy begins to cite. And he says, dear mother, I have suffered a mortal wound in the service of my country. Do not worry about me. Do not have concerns about me. Greet dad and kiss John and Mary. I assume that's younger siblings. And then he loses consciousness. And the president fills out the rest of the letter. And then he writes postscript written for your son by Abraham Lincoln. The young man then regains consciousness, looks at the letter and looks at Abraham Lincoln and says, are you really the president? And he says, yes. And then the president says, is there anything more I can do for you? And the young man said, will you hold my hand until I die? Now, we understand the time to be about six in the evening, maybe five in the evening. And this young man will not die until the next morning around eight. And the president, in the middle of the Civil War, with people to go to see, with things to do, with a Civil War, holds this young man's hand all night into the morning. That's kind. That's what God calls for Christ's followers to be like, to live out the fruit of kindness. What does that look like? It might be mowing the lawn for someone who can't or shoveling a driveway for someone that's very difficult to. It might be sending verses of scripture to someone who's sick or somebody who's on an ICU unit or making a call. It might be bringing someone to church who doesn't have a ride it might just be caring for someone who doesn't really care much for you. That's kind. That's the Spirit working in and through us. God calls us to live out benevolent action, not just a sweet disposition. That's not kindness biblically. That's kindness historically in our culture. This is benevolence in action let me read from Matthew 25, 31 to 40. I won't read all of it. I'm going to skip at least a verse or two. When the Son of Man comes, Matthew 25, 31, the Son of Man is a name given to Jesus in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, verse 33. And he will place the sheep on his right. Those who have a saving knowledge of Christ will be on his right. But the goats, those who reject Christ, will be on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. Now then he's going to talk about good acts. This is not how they're saved. They're saved through faith in Christ. But having accepted Christ, then we are to live out our salvation with fear and trembling. We don't earn our salvation with fear and trembling. We work out that salvation, and these are some of the ways we work it out. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did to the least of these, you did unto me. And what's really remarkable to me is none of this is very big. God sees, God notices, God observes, God will reward what's done as an act of worship. And what are the acts? Giving somebody a cold cup of water? Giving somebody some extra clothing? Visiting somebody who is incarcerated? These are not very difficult things, yet Jesus knows, Jesus sees, Jesus remembers, Jesus rewards. It might be a teenager who sees somebody who's left out and includes them. It might be noticing somebody that you haven't seen for a while and saying, it's great to see you. I love you. It might be forgiving somebody who doesn't ask for forgiveness. One of the most moving passages to me in Scripture is Luke 23, 34. Jesus is on the cross. He's being murdered. And he makes this statement, Father, forgive them. And what you expect, what I expect is, Father, forgive them because they begged for forgiveness. But that's not what is written, is it? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They're murdering me. They're murdering the Christ, the Redeemer. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Smite them. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. We're never more like Christ than when we're doing the more difficult things that Jesus modeled, that Jesus commanded of us. In fact, Scripture says, put on kindness. I don't use very many metaphors when I talk or write, but the Bible does. Colossians 3.12 uses a metaphor. It says, put on then, clothe yourself then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness. Same word. The idea is, as you and I spend time dressing ourselves, we ought to spend time putting on kindness. Now, I'm obviously a fashionista. That, that's clear to all of you. Actually, I'm kind of a bad example because I can get ready in five minutes. Four if I really have to. But some of you have curly hair and you straighten it. Some of you have straight hair and you curl it. A few of you shave your hair, and I don't have any idea why you do that. Some of you spend a long time ironing your clothes, and you make sure they match rather than just grabbing the first two things out of the closet, which is what I do. God says, as we put time into our external appearance, nothing wrong with that, but as we put time into our external appearance, make sure that we're putting more time into the transformation of God in and through us. And one of the fruit that God wants to develop in us is kindness. I want to close with, uh, I think, a remarkable illustration from the Bible. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David has been made king. 
Now we know the background story of David. As a young boy, a son of Jesse, the youngest son of Jesse, he's out doing the dirty work that always happens to the young ones. They get abused by the older siblings. Shame on all of you. And you remember Samuel the prophet comes to the house and he says, let me see your sons. I'm going to anoint one king. And as we would expect from God, he picks the favored one, the youngest. That's David. So David is going to be the next king, but he's not king. He's just going to be the next king. The present king is Saul. King Saul now knows that his dynasty is about to end. His son Jonathan will not be the next king. Now, if you're a king or a queen, and you learn that your dynasty is about to end, and one of your subjects is going to start a new dynasty, that probably is not a good spot for that other person to be in. Historically, what happens when a new dynasty is started? What's the first order of business? Murder everyone from the old dynasty, because they all have a claim on the throne. That's historically true all over the world. So Saul dies. David becomes king. If he follows the pattern all over the world, in most of history, he's going to make sure there are no relatives of Saul. Get rid of the old dynasty, because <coughs> now we have a new one. But David has a problem. He's, he's a child of God. He doesn't follow the world's standards. He doesn't live like the world. He lives like somebody whose spirit works in and through him. And so he's not going to violate his conscience. He's not going to violate the word of God. He's not going to violate his morals. He's not going to violate his ethics. He's going to live for God. He made a promise. He made two of them. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, he told his best friend Jonathan who happens to be the son of the last king. Hey, if you die, I'm going to care for your family. He made a promise to the last king, 1 Samuel 24. Remember, Saul's been trying to kill David for a decade or two. Every sharp object in Saul's hands, he's hurled at David. David has been running on the lamb. He's been living in the desert for a long time because the last king, Saul, wants to murder him because he's been anointed the next king. On a couple of occasions, David could have taken out Saul, but do you remember what he said? Far be it from me that I should lay my hand upon the Lord's anointed. I will let history present itself. I will not take history into my hands. He will not violate his conscience. But he actually told Saul, when you die, I'm gonna care for your descendants. Those were words. Now he's king. Everybody knows the first order of business is to bump off the last dynasty. But David says something different. In 2 Samuel 9, verse 3, he says this. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show hased to? Hased is the strongest word in the Bible for kindness. It's stronger than Christotes in the New Testament. Hasid is about 40 times in the Old Testament. Usually God is the one who extends Hasid. It is incredible kindness. And David says, can I, can I find somebody from the last dynasty that I can show the kindness of God to? 
And he learns that Jonathan, who's dead, has a son, Mephibosheth. That would be Saul's grandson, a legal heir to the throne from the last dynasty. He's alive. We also learn from 2 Samuel 4, verses 4 and 5, that Mephibosheth was dropped as a five-year-old and is crippled. He can't walk. Now, 3,000 years ago, horrific evil. Somebody could have made the case you just put that person to death. David has a double out. He's of the wrong dynasty, and this guy's a cripple. David will have none of it. He values life like God values life. And he says to Mephibosheth, you from now on will have a monthly stipend. You will have a house. And at my table, you will eat every meal. You're welcome for the rest of your life. That was risky. That was costly. If David gets on the wrong side of his people, which he will, Mephibosheth has a legal claim to the throne, a stronger legal human claim than David does. And yet David gives him a seat at the table, a stipend, and a house. And you remember 2 Samuel 9, verse 7. It says that surely David expressed kindness. But it says more than that. It's something called the infinitive absolute. This is the only time this type of structure is used with the word hasid. I don't really know how to describe this, but this would be like God bolding, underlining, highlighting the word of kindness. This is not even done for the kindness of God towards us. Now, certainly that's true, but we don't have a grammatical example of the infinitive absolute, a verbal noun used of God's kindness towards us. Always true, but we don't have an example of that. This is over the top, unexpected, top shelf kindness that David extends to Mephibosheth. And that's the fruit, the fifth fruit of the Spirit. That's what God wants to develop in my life. I'm a long way from it. That's what God wants to develop in your life. Some of you are a lot closer. He wants the fruit of kindness. He wants the church to be known as a church of kindness, never compromising his word, never compromising his morality, never compromising his ethics never compromising his priority in our lives. Never. But living that out in kindness. That's what he wants in your life. That's what he wants in mine. Let's pray. Father God, uh, the fruit of the Spirit are challenging to us. We could read all nine fruit and say, wow, we're ophers, over nines. Or some here could read them and say, yeah, God has really done some great work and I can see developing all nine, but still room for even more. Father, wherever we are, 
in that continuum. We pray that we would not listen to 10 sermons on the fruit and gain a little bit more insight or knowledge without transformation. Father, we pray that even now, right now, this moment, we would do business with your spirit and you would develop in us a commitment to grow in a fruit or two, grow in us a commitment to faithfulness to you. And Father, if there's somebody here that does not know your Son and Savior, may this moment be one in which they, like all of us, rightly confess that we are sinners and our sin will keep us from a holy God, and yet out of kindness, your Son, fully God, took on flesh, went to the cross, paid the penalty of sin, which is death, conquered death, and rose again. And offers his death to be the payment of our sin if by faith we would receive him as Savior and Lord. Father, help us to embrace your son, to live for your son, empowered by your spirit. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.